Hello, and welcome to Deep North. My name is Eric Pomerenke, and I'm joined in the studio today by Iceland Review staff writer Frank Walter Sands. He's going to be sharing with us today his most recent piece, Jon Steingrimson and the Ocean of Fire, an account of the 1783 Laki eruption. In highly uncertain times, when hunger, illness, injury, and death can strike at any moment, it is very human trait to appeal to a higher power. Lutheran Reverend Jon Steingrimson was not unusual in this regard when, in the beginning of June 1783, he began to see clear signs of what would become one of the greatest natural disasters to ever strike Iceland, the catastrophic consequences of which would impact millions of people across the globe. 1783 was a remarkable year by any measure. A young Ludwig van Beethoven published his first work, while Mozart's great mass debuted. In France, the Montgolfier brothers publicly demonstrated their hot air balloon, and the United States and Great Britain signed a peace treaty which formally ended the American Revolutionary War. As the head priest and church provost, or chief dignitary of West Skaftafell County, based in the town of Kirkjabæ Cloister in southeast Iceland, Jón had noted in his diary that beginning on the 1st of June, residents of the mountainside district not far to the north reported a week of near-constant tremors, interrupted occasionally by unusually powerful earthquakes. Mild earthquakes were not unfamiliar to Icelanders and were not necessarily understood as bad omens, but were rarely experienced with such frequency or such intensity. Jón had lived through a calamitous century. Icelanders were keenly aware of their island's highly volatile character, as was made clear by the death and destruction wrought by the 1727 eruption of Örreivajökull, Wasteland Glacier, and the 1755 Mount Katla eruption. The latter may also have triggered the earthquake and accompanying tsunami and fires that destroyed Portugal's capital of Lisbon and killed 12,000 people. More recently, Mount Hecla had erupted in 1766 to 1768, covering the surrounding area with over a cubic kilometer of lava. As violent as these eruptions had been, most had occurred in relatively unpopulated areas, and as a result, few lives were lost. Still, these natural disasters were unpleasant reminders of Icelanders' precarious existence. Before becoming a priest, Jón was recognized as a hard worker and a moderately successful farmer and fisherman. However, he was thought by some to be judgmental, argumentative, and arrogant, leaving his previous position as the local priest in Myrdalur with few friends. Quote, I had to suffer a lot from evil and envious men, because the more God blessed me and stood by me in everything, the more they slandered me and did everything to harm me, so it may well be said that I had to deal with the worst and most foolish men who existed there at that time. Unquote. Notwithstanding his somewhat haughty character, his proven diligence won him accolades in 1777 from the colonial government, and Jon Steingrimson was awarded a Medal of Merit by the Danish Crown. He was also awarded Danish citizenship and the respectable position of provost and head priest of Skaftafell County. 
Many locals praised him for his dual role as a competent man of medicine, known for traveling long distances by foot in order to attend to the sick and infirm, and often charging nothing for his services. By his own reckoning, he used his medical skills to help over 2,000 inhabitants over a period of 17 years. At the time, the church took its role as moral leadership of the nation seriously. As he commented in his diary, Yon felt that in recent years his community was plagued by all manner of sin. He complained that there was too much drinking, that the local people had become lazy, less pious, and even picky about their food. He preached passionately to his parishioners to avoid what he saw as indifference to the illegality and immorality that surrounded them, which could only lead to a bad conclusion, whether in this life or in the hereafter. Quote, when he had seen that a fear of God and justice had managed to go awry, our righteous God would visit upon the people punishment through fire earth and other destruction. Unquote. On the morning of the 8th of June, Yon and his fellow clergymen were preparing for Whitsunday celebrations. It had been a particularly mild spring, and the day was warm and clear. That morning, news reached Yon's ears that would likely have been dismissed as fantasy had he not experienced the eruption of Mount Katla some three decades earlier. The physician general, Bjartney Paulson, and Yon's close friend, had barely escaped Katla's smog with his life, which blinded his horses and nearly smothered him. Reports told of lightning, which is exceedingly rare in Iceland, that had struck a sheep stall and killed all the livestock in an instant. Rumors claimed that villagers far to the north were forced to abandon their homes as an amorphous gray mass slowly enveloped their farmsteads, while cascades of dark red, yellow, and black had been seen deeper in the highlands, and powder that fell like burnt coal ash. Apart from the earth tremors, the only clear sign of foreboding in the town where Yon and his family lived was a black, sandy fog, which was seen to be rising from the north. Although the day of festivities and divine service had begun with gentle skies and beautiful weather, as Yon said, quote, joy quickly turned into grief, unquote. Under the bright summer sun, the ominous sable haze spread rapidly over the county, suddenly rendering the houses of the Riverside District dim as if in the middle of winter. Earthquakes and tremors intensified. In a matter of hours, a fine soot covered these villages like a dark snow, deep enough to leave ashen footprints behind the fleeing villagers. The next day, as the opaque mist grew ever higher and completely covered the district, water from the once mighty Skaftau River diminished to a fraction of its normal output. The following days brought razor-sharp hailstones and dark rain showers as black as ink. Brown spots and holes appeared on leaves and houses, while any uncovered skin was left raw and painful. Newly shorn sheep sought shelter in vain in the treeless landscape as their hides were scorched. On the third day of the eruption, Yon reported, quote, The weather was thick with bitter haze, which caused almost unbearable burning in the eyes and bare skin where it fell, and dizziness in the head, unquote. 
Despite the high volume of the obscure precipitation, the river's flow decreased to little more than a stream. It was not until the 12th of June that the origin of these frightening omens became obvious to inhabitants of the Skaftau district, which was home to 17 farms and some 700 people. On that day, surging noisily with hisses, popping, and cracking sounds, a colossal flow of lava inexorably filled the now dry Skaftau riverbed, setting the once lush grasses and shrubbery on its banks ablaze. Before long, the burgeoning lava overflowed the riverbanks and quickly engulfed the surrounding flatland. Whenever the river of fire would pass over a pond or a mire, steam would shoot upward accompanied by loud bangs that sounded like dozens of cannons firing simultaneously. For the next three weeks, the lava continued to spread along the lowest points of the land. The steaming pile of lava was so broad that it could be seen over the whole county, to the west, on the moors of Gutlbrinka County, quote, the sun, when it could be seen, appeared as a red ball of fire, the moon, red as blood, unquote. When the initial lava flow finally abated in July, Yon made his way on foot northward to get a better idea of the natural disaster that was destroying his community, and to rescue farmers, preserve church valuables, and tend to the sick. Along the way, he encountered many refugees and even a few who attempted to remain despite the hell-like conditions. Yon records that his district had dwindled from 613 residents to 93 through either death or relocation. He recorded his canny observations in what has become an invaluable resource to volcanologists and historians alike. The once beautiful and fertile Fljotskvervi area was now, quote, laid to waste, unquote, which causes Yon tremendous sadness. Churches and farms and all their material wealth fall to fire, water, or are simply abandoned. On the 2nd of November, 1783, Yon held a church service at Kaftafet, a hamlet in southeast Iceland near the Vatnajökull glacier, for the people who still remained. Quote, so great were the showers of ash and sand which blew down from every ridge that we could just make out the farm and church, even though they stand on high ground. This could be called the day of swirling sands and tribulations. The area from the source of the fires to the edge of the new lava was one continuous sea of flame. The fires cast my shadow as if I were walking in bright moonlight. Furthermore, trustworthy men reported that the fires reached so high into the air that at that time there was almost as much light as a good day's journey away. But no description can equal the sight." Unquote. A young woman named Arakheder Budvazdotter lived with her husband, their child, and her husband's parents on a farm just south of the Skaftau River. Earthquakes preceding the Laki eruption caused their houses to collapse, destroying their food supplies. As the eruption continued, their land was covered in a layer of ash and black sand. All their livestock, including six milking cows, 50 sheep, and seven horses, died of hunger and disease. With little to forage for food, 
Their child and the parents-in-law died of hunger. Their farm plot was covered with so much ash and sand that after a few weeks, it was no longer visible. Her husband, weakened by hunger, finally succumbed to disease, and Narakheder was left alone and helpless. After days of travel on foot southward, although weakened by disease and hunger, she survived, but was left landless and impoverished. Few of the survivors were able to return to their land, which was either covered by piles of sand and ash or steaming layers of lava. The Fires of Skaftaur River The Earth's tectonic plates have always been moving, sometimes more slowly and occasionally very quickly. Iceland is located on the Reykjanes Ridge, precisely where the North Atlantic and Eurasian plates are separating. When the tectonic plates in this region move apart from one another more rapidly than usual, the sudden release of pressure allows magma to rise to the surface more easily, triggering earthquakes and volcanic eruptions. Also known as the Skaftaur Eldar, or the fires of Skaftau, the catastrophic Laki eruption centered around 10 fissures and 140 craters. The 27-kilometer-long fissure of the Laki volcano is part of the Grimsvot volcanic system, located under the west side of Europe's largest glacier, called Vatnajökull. Generally considered to be one of the largest and most catastrophic volcanic eruptions in recorded history, over a period of eight months, Laki produced tremendous amounts of lava, ash, and poisonous gases that spread throughout Iceland, Europe, and the world. As far away as Britain, thousands of heads of cattle died from Laki's gas poisoning. Locally, dozens of megatons of highly toxic hydrogen fluoride and hydrogen chloride gases poisoned the flora and fauna below which led to famine as crops and vegetation were laid to waste by the malodorous yellow-tinged gas. In late June 1783, Yon reported there was so much ash, black sand, and sulfuric rain in the area that, quote, snouts, nostrils, and feet of livestock turned bright yellow and raw, unquote. Livestock and crops were nearly totally obliterated in Yon's county, quote, skin rotted off the spines of horses, cattle, and sheep, the poison swelling their heads, jaws, and joints, while rotting their insides and shrinking their bones, unquote. To make matters worse, the dead and dying livestock were rendered inedible, the meat of which was, quote, foul-smelling, bitter, and full of poison, so that many people died as a result of eating it, unquote. Within days, Yon's neighbors showed signs of starvation. Their gums became swollen and cracked. Irregular heartbeats, dysentery, diarrhea, and hair loss were among the most common symptoms, which Yon suspected were caused by the consumption and of contaminated water and food, as well as the inhalation of the toxic air. The ash and toxic gases ended up killing some 50% of the livestock and nearly 25% of Iceland's population, including Thorun, Jón's beloved wife of 31 years, 
Yon's parishioners died in such large numbers that multiple victims were often buried in a single grave. At its maximum, Laki produced 8,000 square meters of lava per second, the volcanic lava fountain reaching up to 1,400 meters in altitude, as much as 15 cubic kilometers, or 40 billion tons of basaltic lava spewed out of Laki. In all, over 600 square kilometers of Iceland's southeast were covered in lava, enough to cover greater London in a meter of lava. In addition, 120 megatons of sulfur dioxide and 350 megatons of carbon dioxide were pushed into the upper atmosphere, reaching altitudes of 15 kilometers and spreading with the jet stream across the northern hemisphere. Apparently, the eruption occurred as 10 distinct pulses of activity, each starting with a brief explosive phase, followed by a longer period of lava flows. The intense volcanic heat melted billions of liters of nearby glacier, flooding downstream rivers and destroying dozens of farms and villages throughout the county and beyond. For years after the eruption, the sulfur dioxide released into the atmosphere caused worldwide cooling, dropping global temperatures precipitously. The ash and sulfur dioxide also led to a cold summer across Europe. Even as far as North America, frost and snowfall was reported in all months of the summer. Observers in various European countries noticed the dim haze through the summer of 1783, but few surmised the cause. American ambassador to France, Benjamin Franklin, came closest when he speculated that the mist and the subsequent harsh winter was possibly due to an eruption of Iceland's Mount Hecla. The catastrophic effects of the eruption on weather patterns were observed across the world, including throughout Asia and Africa. The annual monsoons along the equator failed, and the subsequent drought resulted in hunger, with millions starving from Egypt through South Asia to Japan. Who was Jón Steingrímsson? In the autumn of 1728, Jón Steingrímsson was born on a simple farm in Skagafjörður, in the north of Iceland. He described his parents as decent, God-fearing, and pious folk. His first memory was of a solar eclipse which occurred on the 29th of July, 1732, when he was barely four years old. Not long after, Jón began to learn to read, which became his passion. In his free time, the imaginative country boy would pretend to be a priest, building a church and a chapel from the rocks and tussocks in the fields. With all the farm work that needed doing, he and his brother did not get the opportunity to go to school, and there was little time for play. By the time he was eight, Yon was helping his father daily on the farm. At the age of ten, Yon's father died unexpectedly, leaving his mother and brother with little choice but to work even harder in order to put food on the table. The months that followed his father's death would be filled with strife. Hunger became a frequent visitor. One Sunday, in an act of childhood defiance, Yon impudently defied his mother and skipped Sunday church service. 
While making his escape on horseback, the young Yon fell from the saddle and severely broke his leg, leaving him with a bloody compound fracture. The neighborhood barber, who also served as the local medical authority, was called in to set Yon's leg, a terribly painful procedure, which was performed without anesthetics. Once the bones were set in place, the open wound was treated with dog fat. Then, primitive splints were used to bound his leg in place. For young Yon, this was a learning moment, which, in his impressionable young mind, clearly demonstrated God's wrath at those sinners who would fail to fear and respect him. One summer, visiting priests tested the children in Skagafjörður. Encountering Yon, they were taken aback by the formidable intelligence of the precocious 15-year-old. Yon was duly offered a scholarship to the ancient and venerated Holaskoli, which was one of Iceland's foremost institutes of learning since its founding in 1106. Yon poured all his time into reading and proved to be an excellent student, and before long was top of his class. Because of his intelligence, diligence, and reliability, Yon was sent across the country on numerous errands, which he greatly enjoyed. Traveling around the country on horseback and by ship, he went as far as south as the Westman Islands to purchase fish for the Holar community. Graduating in 1750, at the age of 21, Yon became apprenticed to a priest at Reynestadr in his home county of Skagafjörður. The priest died suddenly, and somewhat mysteriously, only a few years later. Around this time, Yon found himself in an affair with his master's widow, Thorun Hannesdottirskeving, who was ten years his senior. Unfortunately for the lovers, she became pregnant before they could be married, when their liaison was accidentally revealed. The scandal was far worse than either of them could have imagined. Rumors circulated that Yon was somehow involved in his master's death, and he was summarily fired from his position as deacon at the Reynestadr church. Despite his protestations, Yon was formally accused of murder and forced to leave the priesthood in disgrace. There would be a murder trial the following summer. Fortunately, Thorun, now heavy with child, was from a wealthy family and held the title to a farm in Myrdalr in South Iceland. To avoid the malicious gossip, the couple quickly made their way south with Thorun's three children, where their daughter Sigrider was born. When judgment on the murder charges was passed that summer at Thingvetlir, Jón Steingrímsson and Thorun Skeving were greatly relieved to be found innocent and were completely exonerated. The family lived near the southern town of Hetla for several years until Yon was finally ordained a priest at the age of 33. Apparently, enough time had passed for Yon to be forgiven for his indiscretion. Serving as priest for the next 17 years, Yon proudly kept his role as a farmer and fisherman. In addition, his passion for learning made him a competent informal doctor which would provide much-needed relief to thousands. Yon became so well-known for his skills as a healer that he was called in to treat patients from all over West Skaftafell County and neighboring Rangkaurvatlar County. 
the Danish crown recognized Jon's merit, quote, with a great insight into theology combined with solid knowledge of herbal studies and the art of medicine. He succeeds wisely in applying his knowledge in his region, where it is greatly needed, not only in his own parish, but also in the adjacent regions on both sides, and he willingly goes to everyone, even the poorest, and gives them wise advice when it is desired. For this purpose, he often goes on difficult journeys at his own expense and with his own horses. For this, he does not even allow himself to be paid, but besides that, he gives his services to the poor without charge. The Fire Sermon When the steadily encroaching flows of lava threatened to destroy the last remaining land around Kirkjabai Cloister on the 20th of July, 1783, Yon and his parishioners were forced to abandon their heavily damaged or destroyed homes and farms, taking final refuge in a nearby church. In one of the most powerful and moving speeches in Icelandic history, Yon delivered the famous Fire Sermon, in which he urged his congregation to pray for God's help in their time of desperation, imploring them to accept their fate by turning to God, to trust in His providence, even in the face of disaster and death. As they faced the crisis before them, Yon emphasized the importance of forgiveness, mercy, and love. He reminded them that they were all sinners but if they turned to God with repentance and profound faith, the Lord would be forgiving and merciful. Miraculously for Yon and the congregation, the lava suddenly stopped short of the church, confirming for the faithful that their prayers had indeed been heard and that God, despite his apparent wrath, was surely merciful. Yon Steingrimson is remembered as a brave and compassionate leader who helped his community through one of the most difficult times in their history. A parishioner wrote about Reverend Yon's preaching, quote, I attended the church, which was all shaking and trembling from the threats that came from above. But then I was undaunted, and I thought about all those who were in the church, that we were kind and ready to receive what God wanted. God was then warmly and truly invoked. Despite dwindling resources and weakening health, Yon housed patients at his farm or traveled long distances in poor conditions to administer whatever aid he could. His friend, Bjartni Paulsen, later the physician general of Iceland, generously donated medicines and tools to Yon. He traveled several times west to the governor's seat at Bessestader in order to get any help for his community, which, sadly, all too often came late or not at all. Well, thank you so much for coming in to talk today, Frank. Thank you. It's really a pleasure to read this story. I would say that it's a rather serendipitous topic uh, given current events, but I suppose Indeed. it's not exactly a surprise that there is a volcano going off in Iceland. So in that sense. <laughs> it is. If you think about it, we've been very lucky the previous two years and now this one, all in the summertime. 
Yeah, I mean, certainly your story is a reminder of the raw power and danger of this natural phenomenon. Um, you know, I mean, unfortunately, just uh, as as we're recording this in the last twenty four or forty eight hours, uh, there has been a lot of uh, you know, obviously, interest in the latest eruption uh, by Fagerdalsfjall, uh, but you know, also sometimes people not behaving the most responsibly uh, around fresh lava. And perhaps this is a good reminder uh, to r respect the power of volcanic activity. <laughs> I, I think that's a, an excellent point. It's also um, interesting to note that the eruptions that we've experienced in the last couple of years in this same region are minuscule um, in mm in comparison to the one that we're talking about in this story, uh, not just in the amount of lava produced, but in also the toxicity of the, of the gases and, and uh, sand, which is um, blown out of these craters. Uh, it, I've seen the word several times now in Icelandic media, manvind, mm -hmm. which is maybe best translated as human friendly. Yeah. Uh, and of course the other side of that coin is not human friendly, <laughs> yes. uh, which is a good reminder, of course, that uh, yes, these are very often highly dangerous, toxic, lethal events. Yes, I think one of the things that people often do not understand is scale. And we're looking at such a massive eruption in the case of the Alaki eruption that it's hard for us to actually visualize it in any way but if you think about how it could completely destroy about a quarter of the country within a matter of months making it almost impossible to survive there until years later that is is hard to reconcile when you think about this little tiny thing that's next to us that's fun to visit uh after a short hike yeah um I don't have the exact number off the top of my head, but the original fissure from the 2023 Reykjanes eruption, you know, it began uh, something maybe 50 meters long and kind of quickly grew to maybe about a kilometer and a half, I believe, is one of the more recent figures. Um, but, you know, I just kind of jotted down some of the figures from your story as you were reading just from my memory. And I think it's really stark to just look at the figures. Of Lockie. I mean, Absolutely. just just off the top of my head, some of the things that you mentioned were about 120 million tons of sulfur dioxide, a 27 kilometer long fissure, compared to you know the more kind of tourist and human friendly fissures that are maybe one kilometer long or so, uh, approximately 14 or 15 cubic kilometers of basalt lava produced approximately 50% of total livestock in the nation dying, and about a quarter of the human population dying. It's, it's, it's almost unimaginable. But one has to go to the region even today, and one can see these fields of, of lava, which actually look really beautiful now. Most of them are covered with uh, lichen and moss. Mm. But one can see how close it gets to uh, where the human settlements are. And one can just imagine where the previous settlements had been that were just completely covered with lava. Well, so Kirkabaiklistur is a town that many visitors to Iceland have probably traveled through on their journeys along the south coast. Uh, what can you 
tell me is there today as in like in, in terms of remnants of this the churches themselves uh didn't survive the intervening years even the one that was mentioned there in the final paragraph um there is plenty of uh what would one say the remnants of the old cloister it was uh once there a very famous benedictine mm -hmm. cloister um the flooring one can see parts of it here and there where the foundation was but uh the city as such was more or less left and then restarted a few years later and all of the buildings now trace from the uh, 20th century there's nothing older than that there that i'm aware of so it is precisely the absence of what's left that's the that's the real remnant i think it was a total of six churches which were destroyed by the the lava you know very often when we talk about iceland it's kind of this truism that iceland has been isolated from the continent for much of its history and in one sense that's obviously true um but you know iceland also has this way of popping up in history in ways that you don't expect and kind of influencing events you know uh there's you know, I mean, of course, nothing in history is ever quite so simple and clear-cut as a kind of one-to-one cause-effect kind of relationship. But, you know, yeah, there's this interesting possible connection with the French Revolution. Absolutely. And crop failures kind of exacerbating existing social problems. Um, also, I didn't know this until you mentioned it, uh, but I thought it was really interesting that there was a possible connection to the 1755 Lisbon earthquake and tsunami and seismic activity uh, in Iceland. Um, and as some people might know, uh, that uh, earthquake is kind of f famously dramatized in uh, Voltaire's Candide mm -hmm. from 1759. Uh, and, it, it, you know, it, it, it's kind of this example to undermine uh, this character Pangloss, uh, who, you know, uh, believes in the best possible world uh, in, in in Leibniz's terminology and, uh, you know, that, that we are indeed living in the best possible world. And, you know, I mean, for a lot of uh, Enlightenment thinkers, uh, the Lisbon earthquake was a very clear demonstration that this may not indeed be the case uh, and you know i mean like this was really kind of a shocking event to happen in the heart of europe really yeah. uh, i mean i don't know off the top of my head but i mean something around ten thousand people died and just kind of like large twelve thousand yeah. yeah like like just large parts of the city were just lost to the sea yeah if if you look at uh, modern lisbon um the entire lower part of the city has been completely reconstructed since that uh tsunami earthquake and set of fires and they built a grid system. It's the only uh, European city that has a grid pattern like New York City. Mm. And this was a modernization. And it's also reflecting the fact that, um, just as you mentioned, there was a, a, a philosophical um, change in the way Europe began to look at uh, its relationship to religion. And a lot of people, including um, Goethe, uh, the famous German philosopher, scientist, novelist, started to question the existence of God. And um, this really, as you mentioned, was part of the Enlightenment. And um, it's fascinating to think that it all goes back to the 1755 Katla eruption, which also may very well have been connected to this uh, tsunami that destroyed Lisbon. 
Another uh, interesting semi-historical uh, volcanic eruption that did not occur in Iceland, but I think is of interest here also, um, is, uh, well, it's generally thought to have occurred in 535, but it's re- it's often referred to as the volcanic winter of 536. Um, it's still up for debate where exactly this happened. I believe the consensus is currently that it might've been a Guatemalan volcano, um, but all across Scandinavia uh, in 536, you see archaeological evidence of people abandoning settlements Mm. and massive declines in population. And, you know, for anyone who's kind of interested in Norse mythology, uh, this has kind of been interpreted in a way as the original Fimbulvetur, which is, uh, you know, the kind of the three-year-long winter that uh, precedes the end of the world uh, in Norse cosmology. And, you know, I mean, so of course, um, it's never quite so simple, you know, I mean, like, was there a historical flood from the Bible or something? It's never quite that simple, right? But I mean, clearly, uh, there was a catastrophic volcanic event uh, at some point when the people that eventually became Norwegians and Icelanders were starting to kind of think about their worldview, and these events really shape how people think of the world. It must have been so terrifying, because they probably would have had no idea where it was coming from, what it was, and so forth. Yeah, I mean, you have to genuinely think that this basically is the end of the world when your entire community is just on fire and you haven't seen the sun properly in a year. It 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 actually reminds me of uh, the the word volcano itself in Icelandic, which of course is eldfjall, literally fire mountain. And I love how terse and succinct um, the people (laughs) who were actually making these words could be. I mean, what a better word could you think of than fire mountain? <laughs> and if you think about it, they had to come up with that when they came to Iceland because the Norse um, and the Vikings in general at that time, the explorers and so forth, they did not encounter volcanoes. It was an, an unknown thing, mm. uh, very much as as Pliny with the uh, Pompeii eruption of 79 he was describing it as something he'd never seen before or even heard of, a volcanic eruption. And clearly this was a good opportunity to create a new word. Uh, Yeah, this is a little bit uh, off topic, I suppose, but there's this other, um, you know, probably a lot of people are familiar with this story uh, from Norse mythology in which uh, Thor and Loki uh, are kind of journeying together to go to Jotunheim, Um, and, uh, along the way they kind of sleep in what they think is a cave. And it turns out that it's actually the glove that belongs to a giant. Um, and the way that this is described is like the giant kind of moves in the night or he picks up his glove or something. I forget exactly how it goes, but it's described as an earthquake. Ah. And I mean, like specifically seismicity isn't really something that you would be particularly conscious of, for instance, in Denmark. And these, you know, like this is a very clear uh, example of how, I mean, just the landscape itself and the nature here, uh, just influenced not just the literature, but mythology and worldview in a much larger sense. Yeah. It, it is really interesting to think about how phenomena were interpreted in ancient times with a total lack of scientific understanding. And I guess Iceland was a, a very interesting laboratory for, for, the human experience because they were encountering all kinds of things. Well, not just that, but think of things maybe a little less um, destructive, like the Northern Lights. Mm. Um, that's something that, for example, if you think about it, the Romans, or the in Latin, there was no word for it. The word aurora 
is just a reference to uh, the morning sun. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Borealis simply means of the north. Yeah. So they didn't really have a clear concept of it. But in Icelandic, we, of course, we use the word norðurljós, meaning northern lights, which I think is also, again, quite succinct. <laughs> uh, the, uh, that there are lights that are in the north. You don't find them in the south. The uh, northern settlers were not exactly, um, well, they were happy to be very descriptive. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I guess they had to be. Um, but the, uh, the naming of things in Icelandic is something that I think is very special, and it's something this uh, culture and can take great pride in because there's a lot of wonderful uh, neologisms um, that it, that other uh, Scandinavian and Nordic languages do not contain. Mm. Uh, I confess this is a little bit less intellectual, um, but I couldn't help but uh, feel like this whole story of the fire sermon and Jon Steingrimsson uh, would just really make a great movie. Oh, uh, and yeah. ha ha having recently uh, seen uh, Vola the Land or Godland, yeah. uh, which is a recent movie that, I rather recommend. I think it's very um, thought-provoking, and it's a kind of movie about nature. And I mean, in some sense, it's kind of like a Nordic take on Heart of Darkness in is, a way. Isn't it like 18th century or something? Yeah, it it's a movie about a Danish priest uh, who comes to Iceland. Um, I forget the exact time period, but uh, like photography is a big idea in this movie and so like he kind of comes with like an early camera and he's kind of documenting the landscape uh and he's danish so he's a colonizer in that sense and he is both kind of fascinated by the landscape in a kind of romantic way but uh you know this kind of uh, repeatedly rebuffed by it and its ferocity and he ultimately dies in a kind of dramatic way um but yeah i mean just just this image of the uh righteous and kind of wrathful uh, Protestant pastor giving the fire sermon as his uh, church is, you know, threatened by the fires of hell is a rather dramatic image. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, I, I always take my hat off to anybody who could survive through all of those times. It's, I think we have very little understanding in our day and age for what a struggle it was to survive um, in general, but in Iceland especially, and also even more so when we had these times of disaster or starvation or deprivation, of which there have been many episodes. Yes. Yeah, and I don't know, m maybe a note uh, that I would like to end on is an appreciation for... Um, the better understanding of these phenomena that we have now, you know, we've been very lucky in a way the last three years now in a row with surprising regularity to have, yeah, these uh, very nice social media, tourist friendly eruptions. Uh, but, you know, there's very important work being done to predict these things because they can be incredibly dangerous. Yeah. Uh, and we've been very lucky. I mean, for instance, um, there was some concern uh, with the latest eruption that if the lava would flow north, that it could possibly affect Reykjanesbraut, uh, the main road connecting the capital area to the international airport. And so we have been very lucky uh, volcanically and seismically yeah. in the last couple of years. And it's not to be taken for granted. Things are not always this nice. I, I, 
I completely agree. And I think that it's only a matter of time before some really big thing happens. Hopefully it'll happen, not near us, but it will happen, whether it's a gigantic earthquake and then a big volcanic eruption or a huge amount of gas. Um, in the 30 plus years I've been living here, I've experienced so many of them that I assume it's just a question of a couple of years before Katla or Hekla or, or I mean, even something like the old Lockie thing happens again. Uh, I think it's predicted that every hundred years there's a major volcanic event. Mm. And so theoretically we're overdue. <laughs> Well, on that optimistic <laughs> note, uh, I will say thank you again for coming into Talk Frank. Thanks, but I find volcanoes <laughs> very exciting. <laughs> thank you. Deep North is the official podcast of Iceland Review, the oldest continuously running English language publication on Iceland, covering community, nature, and culture. If you enjoyed listening, please consider subscribing to Iceland Review at our website.